Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, William Miller Jr. He was a former radiologist, and now he's an evolutionary biologist. Um, I've had many great conversations with him. He's he's very open to uh, a lot of new novel thoughts about science that I think uh, other people aren't. And I wanted him to be a part of the cancer book I'm putting together. So that's what the focus of the call today is. So, Bill, thanks for coming back. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, I really appreciate this invitation because... It gives me a chance to offer an alternative approach to understanding cancer cell dynamics that comes out of my work as an evolutionary biologist. I think that there's a big advantage to examining how cancers proliferate. Uh, If you look at it through a different lens, uh, and I think by doing that, it, it empowers thoughts that will lead to alternative approaches to cancer therapy. So I am sure that you have interviewed terrific scientists and they've detailed explicit molecular pathways and and means of tumor suppression. And there's no doubt that that these have brought significant treatment advances to patients. But there are lots of cancers that are very refractory to treatment. And there are many cancers that do get treated and they seem to be treated successfully initially. They go into remission, but they simply recur years later. I think that there's a distinct advantage to looking at a cancer on the basis of cellular community ecology and cell-cell signaling. These are the basic dynamical attributes of cellular ecologies, and I'll be explaining all this. So to explore cancer in this way, from this unusual, from from this different starting point, I'd like us to uh, approach cancer from a very different perspective than the traditional one. And I, I will add, I'm not a cancer researcher, I'm an evolutionary biologist that has studied cellular dynamics in some detail in order to try to productively explain certain evolutionary problems. So first thing I think for us to to talk about is that cancer is a ubiquitous process. I know people understand that, but it's it occurs basically in all multicellular eukaryotes in all organisms that animals that we can see with their eyes. More or less all of them get cancers. There are some potential exceptions. The naked mole rat, for example, may not get cancer that we know about. Uh, And plants don't get metastatic cancer, but they do get tumors, localized tumors. They have a different cellular structure. They don't, they have very tight, inflexible membranes between the cells. And so they, they, they don't get cancer spread the way animals do. So why is it that cancer is so widespread. And in order to understand that, you have to understand two ultimately essential parts of cancer dynamics. The first is 
that we are holobionics. And let me explain what that means. That means that every single one of us, every single animal that we can see with our eyes, plants, are a constellation of intrinsic cells, personal cells, and an associated microbiome. This is the center point of multicellular life on this planet. And the second absolutely essential point is every single cell of our body, our body cells, and every single one of our companion microbes is intelligent at its own scope and its own limited way. So by placing cellular life on from these two essentials that have not been commonly explored for cancer dynamics, where, where does this take us? Well, I've, I believe that there's a lot to be gained by discussing cancer in a framework of an intelligent measuring cell. And I'd like to explain how that relates to cancer, to dynamics, cellular dynamics, and what that would mean for, for cancer research. You know, since we have the concept of holobionts and multicellular life, is cancer in a multicellular state, which it is, I mean, so far as we know, it may start from a single cell, but probably not. Since it's multicellular, is it a separate independent life form inside of someone that has it? Does it act in concert? Does it have a sense of self? Does it uh, act to achieve? Does it act in, in, as one? Or is it just individual cells trying to establish their own, you know, homeostatic preference? And let me explain why that is so. And, and let me add that this concept of every cell, including every cancer cell, as being an intelligent measuring agent is still very, very unfamiliar to most scientists. The first thing is that every cell of every kind is self-aware. Well, what do we mean by self-aware? It's self-referential. It means that it senses the environment. It perceives the environment on an individual level, but in a knowing way. It's not like a thermostat. It's not like a, a robot. It's the, the, the knowing that it has received information. Because of that, it is capable of further things. It's capable of collective sensing. It can cooperate. Cells can cooperate. They have complex communication. They can use proxies for certain tasks. They have memory. They, not, they can not only interrogate information and assess it, they can store information. They learn. They adapt. Importantly, they anticipate. Cells predict. They measure. What does that mean? They can compute. They can make, they can make measuring differences between states, between energy levels between molecular configurations. Cells can work together in com combination. They can decide together. They can problem solve as, as a, a collaborative. They can trade resources. In, cells are very social. So all of those things constitute the self, the separate self that you're mentioning. That self, that ability to be self is all of those things, all of those faculties combined. And what does that mean? It means that cancer cells, just as you indicate, is are separate cells. This is critical because really most researchers in cancer don't think of cells in this concept of self-awareness and that they are well, a, a never another form of life than a normal body cell. At what point do you think, though, that that this happens? Is it as soon as there's more than one cancer cell? Or does it take a while? No, it's the first. Millions it's, millions no, no, great question. It's the first one. It's the first one because of the self that we're going to talk about, and I'll go through it in a minute, but the self that we're going to talk about is instantiated. It occurs when you have that episode of chromosomal instability that leads to aneuploidy or an abnormal carrier type. So genes are not everything in a cancer cell, but once those genes have mutated in that way, from whatever the trigger is, most likely an infectious trigger. Whenever you've reached that stage of, of an abnormal karyotype, you have a different self. And I'm, we're going to talk about why that's so critically important, because the faculties of that different cancer selfness are very different from the normal cell. And I'm going to explain why they're different and what it means for cancer therapy. So what is it that a cell is doing with itself? It's selfishness. It's, it's self it's upholding itself. It, what is it trying to do? What does every self do? It seeks to protect itself. It wants to maintain its state of equipoise or homeoresis. Homeoresis being that dynamical flux state around uh, a, a, what we used to consider was homeostasis, but the better term is homeoresis, which means they're fluxing around that steady state. It's not, no cell is a steady state. It's dynamical flux all the time. 
Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. But what is the important thing about this, this flux pattern? It permits discriminating reactions to stimuli. It permits contingent reactions. And what are, what are those reactions directed to? Problem solving. This is true for regular cells and it's true for cancer cells. So what are cells, how do cells problem solve? They measure, what are they measuring? Information about the environment. How, how does a cell measure? It measures through its senome, which this is a new concept put together by Francisek Belushka in, in the University of Bonn and, and me. And the senome is a concept of the entire sensory apparatus of a cell and all of those resources that it can devote to sensing the environment so that it can measure appropriately. And from that, it determines what it must communicate and what resources it must deploy. So well, what's a quick, quick, yeah. quick comparison here. So what's, what's my senome? Is that hear, smell, taste, touch, feel? Yes, that's your, that's, that would be your senome as a multicellular organism, but your cell has its own, its own apparatus, like a flagellum would be, that permits uh, the, the touching of, of other cells, uh, the, uh, the touching of nutrients, a um, uh, surface proteins that, that permit contact uh, with nutrients, the recognition of immunological factors, and so on. That's the senome of the cell. Our senome is the combination of cells that permit our the means in which we experience the environment. So what are cells doing with their measurement? They're communicating them to other cells because they're trying to get the most valid information from the environment. Well, what's, why do cells have to do that? Because in biologically term, biological terms, information is always ambiguous. And we've talked about that before, Rich. But what, what does that mean? It means that there's no perfect information available to any cell. Any information that a cell gets is coming uh, through membranes, travel through media. There's always degradation. So there's always imprecision to any information that a cell gets. And so what does a cell, how does a cell react to this knowing state, the self-referential state, knowing that the information it has may be okay, but it's not really that good. And maybe I could find a better access to information, better quality of information. How does a cell respond? Well, that's multicellularity. That's why we have multicellularity. It's the wisdom of crowds. What's the cell trying to gain from multicellularity? It's preferred state, lowered energy consumption, and much more importantly, lower levels of uncertainty about the environment. So getting back to what your question is, are cancer cells a different self? Yes. What are they trying to seek to maintain themselves? And what, what does this mean for cancer therapy? You gotta understand truly what that different self is for a cancer compared to a normative cell. But I, I want to emphasize something right here. We haven't discussed molecules or specific signaling patterns or suppressors or genes very much or cell cycles. What I want to emphasize is that cancer is a process. It's a process because it's led by a self-referential intelligent measuring agent. So what is that process? What is a cancer process? Well, intelligent cells measure environmental cues, and then they communicate those measurements, and they work with other cells to improve the validity of the information, the precision of the information that's available to them. Well, if you combine measurement and communication, what do you have? Engineering. And that's the active process of cancer cells is engineering. So when we say proliferation, you know, people understand that means uh, rapid growth, and, and in cancer, we, we tend to think of it as wild, wild growth. But on the really contrary. Think of it as just right, blind, unplanned growth. growth yeah, but growth it, thank you, Rich. Exactly my point. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. No, it's not wild. It's not unplanned. It's not random. It's engineering. So now we're placing 
cancer into an active process framework in which the defining aspect of that process is engineering. And there are several important codicils that go from this. So first of all, what are cells trying to engineer? Well, they're engineering the tissue ecologies that you make you and me. Our normal cells combine with our companion essential microbes to make our tissue cells. Every one of my body tissues has my own body cells and a companion microbiome. Even our brain has a microbiome, albeit very small, but that's the surprising thing we found is that no place is sacrosanct. And so what are these tissue ecologies combined to make? Us, holobionts. We are a mixture of our differentiated body cells, some scattered stem cells, and importantly, microbes. So what well, this here's, is- Here's a, a quick hint as to the deliberate proliferation of the deliberate expansion of cancer is that it appears to have tropisms. You know, liver cancer tends to spread to certain other organs first and brain cancer right. and you know, all the other kinds. Why do they have tropisms then? Well, because each, each of the different cancer cells is a different self, but they combine. And if they have occurred at a specific body part type, they're going to proliferate among themselves by clonal, by clonal reproduction, which is very different from what happens in the normal body. Because of that, they are kind of reproducing identical cells. It's, all, it's almost as if the cancer is a set of identical twins, as opposed to just brothers and sisters. The identical twins aren't going to always be identical to each other, absolutely, but they're going to share a lot more things than you know just ordinary brothers and sisters might share. So where are we going with all of this? How does this change our thinking about cancer? Well, it makes three things. You can't discuss cancer in modern terms, I believe without talking about self-referential intelligent cells and defining what that means for both normal cells and cancer. You can't discuss cancer appropriately without understanding how tissue ecologies are co-engineered, how partnerships are formed among cells. And then critically, when you talk about these partnerships, you've got to be talking about an associated microbiome. So the very important aspect is what you asked first. That is, what's different about cancer cells with how they engineer in tissue ecologies compared to normal cells. They are a different self. Their abnormal karyotype leads them to be a different self. I don't know if this is, I hope it's not taking you off track, but what's the difference between a neoplasm or a benign tumor versus a cancerous one? Has anyone looked deeply and what is the differences and why is that important? We don't, we don't hear, well, actually that leads to the, one of the great mysteries. We don't know exactly why that is. We know how to grade them. We can look under a microscope and see, we can make certain inferences about the degree of differentiation of the cells. And we, so for example, in breast cancers, stages one through four, and the, the degree of, of how different the cell seems from a normal cell becomes the part of the grading. But a major part of it is really what tissues have that spread into? Does it stay in one little site or does it, what's, does it invade? beyond certain borders. And we've, we've created an artificial system of measurement of cancerogenic potentials that do serve in a very rough way to indicate the aggressivity of a cancer type. But it's not uncommon for a woman to be diagnosed with a stage two breast cancer, which is supposed to have a 95% plus survival rate, to end up dying four years later of stage four breast cancer because the thing flipped on a dime and we don't know why. In fact, one of the great mysteries is, so the, the abnormal cancer karyotype can be multiplication of a ploidy, of chromosomes. And this annual ploidy, this abnormal ploidy is a, is a feature of all cancers, virtually all cancers. And the problem is that this chromosomal instability, this abnormal chromosomal number, this abnormal karyotype isn't a universal, it, it's a universal feature of all cancers, but not everybody with these type of cells gets a cancer. In fact, in some instances, these aneuploidy cells, cells with aneuploidy will inhibit tumorogenesis. And we don't understand why. It's context specific. And so that's really one of the, the areas that I, that I want to urge is that we begin to understand the context-specific aspects of cells through their engineering and co-partnerships, rather than just trying to knock them off, rather than just trying to slay them. It's a much more nuanced approach to cancer. 
So it's a, it's a lot more than altered gene expression. So a lot of cancer research is looking for patterns of altered gene expression that lead to abnormal proliferation. What I'm trying to offer is that we can look at different aspects of cancer productively. It doesn't mean we have to give up any old area, any other former line of investigation. It means that we have to look forward a little differently. We need to find how it co-partners separately, how cancer co-engineers differently, how it engages in competitive niche construction compared to normal cells. I mean, you've got cancer forming in one site in a body. It's, it is both cooperating and competing with other cells, normal cells that surround it. What is cancer doing then? It's utilizing its tools differently. So for example, cancer finds new pathways to transport neoplastic cells compared to normal cells. Again, these are actions rather than specific molecules. I'll, I'll leave it to other cancer researchers to figure out specific molecules. What I'd like for us to think about is a new perspective of how to approach seeking out those molecules. Well, so if I have, uh, if someone has you know, metastatic cancer, is the, the primary, you know, communicating with the metastases? Are they coordinating action and deployment of new metastatic sites, for instance? Um, yeah. You know, it, is, the primary, is there a hierarchy, too, if there's communication? Yeah. Well, what I think that to answer that question correctly is these are important differences, and they should be explored by looking at cancer in the way we look at our growing learning to, to talk about cellular ecologies in the normal state. We look at cellular ecologies when they combine together. So when a tissue ecology combines together in enough overlapping types, it becomes a phenotype. It becomes a manifestation of metabolism, physiology, or morphology, a phenotype. So what is the, what, what allows cancer to do these things, to get away with metastasis, to, to, perform these abnormal things. Well, cancer has ecological privileges. As, as you indicated, it's a new cell. So what is it doing? It's creating a new type of cellular environment. It's creating a cancer niche construction, which may be triggered by genomic variation. But the critical aspect isn't the genomic variation so much as for whatever reason, and which of which genomic variation is one of them, it's using its cellular tools in a different way from normal cells. So what are, the, what are the privileges of cancer cells? Higher levels of pluripotency, they're more flexible. What, are the, what, can cells, what can cancer cells do that normal cells can't do or can't do very much? Well, here's an important thing that cancer cells can do. They can go backwards in their toolbox. Basically, it's reverse evolution. They, not only do they have the differentiating skills of a current modern normal cell, but cancer cells, for reason that we don't understand, can it's termed backwardization. They can basically undergo reverse evolution and call upon age-old tools, survival tools, profound survival mechanisms that are part of a huge, long learning curve of evolution. And cancer can deploy these in a way that a regular cell can't. And what does it get out of this? A different life cycle, absence of apoptosis, and immortal clonal lineages. This is highly distinguishing from normal cells. So what does this mean for cancer? It means it can find solutions to ecological problems, cellular ecological problems that normal cells can't. And basically, it can secure cellular resources. It can outcompete. But the, but the important thing, Rich, is as what you pointed out from the beginning, it can do these things because it's a different self-referential measuring intelligent agent. And so what, what's happening, what's happening in, in cancer? At, at what point is it really, I mean, there's like now a battle between the cancer self and our self. At what point does, I don't know, I guess the, the voice, the needs of the cancer become so great that the body, it's like, all right, we get, this is now a problem. We got to get rid of this thing. And how does cancer, I mean, I guess they evade the immune, it evades the immune system and proliferates fast. But I mean, at what point is this a battle between two organisms? Is there any ever, is there ever a collaborative behavior? Is it always a fight? Uh, these are terrific questions. You're, the answers are yes. And let me get to them along the line of reasoning I've been doing so that I'm basically defending my point of view. My, the answer to everything you said is yes. The answer is also that we don't know those explicit triggers. And my further point will be that we can find them better by posing the proper questions about cancer that have never been done before. So 
we don't know why cancers suddenly leap from quietude, from quiet states, from being calmly present and reproducing in a kind of gentlemanly way, as it were, to becoming incredibly aggressive. We don't know for that matter why many types of microbes are perfectly willing to be latent and do no harm, but otherwise can suddenly become ferociously aggressive. For example, with HIV AIDS, many people have a quiet asymptomatic infection for decades before they suddenly become symptomatic and have a rapid downhill course. We've, we've learned some techniques about how to push them into that kind of a quiet state, but we still don't know why in some instances, the virus determines to stay quiet. And everyone's first thought is, well, it has to be due to because that person had a robust immune system. Well, that's partially true, I'm sure. But there's another half of it. Does the virus make the decision? We don't know that yet. But that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But you can see the analogy. So we, what does all of what we've started to talk about, what does this mean for our frame of reference about cancer? Cancer cells are cognitive agents, and they deal with ambiguous information, imprecise, uncertain environmental cues in cellular environment. So what is, what is the, what's the first frame of reference that it would help us in cancer research to think about? Cancer is a form of cognitive entanglement with its cellular milieu. So to answer your question, are they ever cooperating with other tissues that are normal next to them all the time? It even follows further because they're cognitive when cancers circulate and go to other sites where they can be metastatic, they're not just acting like automatons. They're intelligent measuring cells. So cancer growth and metastasis, they're not random processes. Cancer cells are making decisions. This is not the way we framed cancer thoughts in the past. It's because it's a different cell and it doesn't have to abide by the same rules as other cells. So what are the patterns of cellular activity that characterize cancer? Why is it different? Well, first of all, it has the same basic skills as regular cells, but it, has, it, it acquires some others, maybe by virtue of its chromosomal missegregation, but it, by, for whatever reason it does. So cancer follows basic rules of cellular life. Cancer cells cooperate with each other. They compete with each other and they actively trade resources among themselves, but also with adjacent cellular networks, cellular ecologies. And they're transferring information between both communities. But the special things that they can do is they can explore the environment more rapidly because they are more flexible in their phenotypic shifts. They have unusual longevity. And I mentioned that they can regress. They're flexibly regressive. They can adapt to conditions faster because they can go backwards in their cellular toolkit. In in effect, they have an an enhanced cellular toolkit compared to normal cells. So what does this, what is one of the skills that they get from this? moving backwards in in evolution space-time. That's part of, I believe that that's part of how they're so successful in evading immune surveillance. That's- How how do you think cancer starts? What are some of the ways? I think that the primary mechanism is infectious, uh, what we would regard as an infectious interchange. I think that we know for certain that there are multiple cancers that are directly associated with infectious disease. HPV is an excellent example, oral cancer, cervical cancer. There are certain leukemias which are clearly infectious in origin, lymphomas are the same. I believe that in the end, we will find that all cancers have an infectious component, which may be either a direct infectious trigger, like a virus, like we already know at least 12% of cancers are infectious in origin. But I further believe, and I'll go into this a little bit more, that all cancers are going to be associated with some kind of microbial dysbiosis. All cancers have their own tumor microbiome, and we will find And we will also find that there's, like with our own normal tissues, which are a complex intimate uh, intimate partnership between our own normative cells and our cohabitating essential microbes, that cancers are doing just the same thing. They're doing it in a competitive way. But importantly, this is an important point. When that cancer gets started by whatever trigger it is, no matter what my bias is about the trigger, no no matter what. The important point is that the frame of reference of cancer research has been that cancer is a stochastic, Darwinian, selective, select. If you read the cancer literature, it's all about selection. 
selection of clonal lineages and selection and selection. No, I'm not saying selection doesn't matter. Of course, selection matters. But what matters more is that self-referential cells measure. And what does that mean for cancer? It's active. It's propulsive. When it's, it's agitating, it agitates adjacent cells. It's a cheater. It seizes resources that ought, would not normally be available to a regular cell. In other words, it's a self-directed, selfish, self-referential agency. And this is what permits the coordinated actions of cancer cells. This is what lets them problem solve in, in cancer constituencies in competition with other normal ecological players. So what, what, is the, what can we do that's different in looking at cancer? How should we approach it differently? If, the, if all of these things that I'm saying are useful, what, what would we do differently? Well, we could obviously continue to look at, at suppressing or extirpating cancer along immunological lines. But there's a big difference in thinking about cancer cells as self-referential and problem-solving in their own right, and also thinking about how we deploy T cells, which would be one of the primary cells that we try to energize to combat cancer with immunotherapies and immunomodulation. T cells are also self-referential. T cells are also problem solvers. You think about things differently if you think you're dealing with an intelligent companion than an idiot. Cells are clever, cells are smart, and cells are creative. So what I mean by this is this is much more than biochemistry. We can go about manipulating a second way. We can go about manipulating a tumor microenvironment in a different way. We can concentrate on concepts of co-engineering, co-partnership, niche construction. What is one of the primary ways that cells co-engineer? Well, they use what are called stigmergic cues. So what are those? Those are the little traces that every organism leaves in an environment by, by doing any action. So for example, termites, when they're building a mound, they, they leave, leave little chemical signals that others can follow. Ants do the same. Well, cells also do things like that. They provide stigmergic cues. And this is a whole new level of cell-cell communication, which I believe has not been deeply evaluated to date. So it's a very fertile way and a very different way of looking at cancer dynamics. How do you counsel, how do you, so when I say you, you manipulate a tumor molecular environment, how do you counter a skillful, selfish cancer player, cancer cell? Well, you, you try to disrupt their ability to explore the environment, cellular motility. You try to deprive cancers of resources, and that's certainly been worked on, but, but uh, when you th- realize that they're intelligent and problem solving, you may look at deprivation of resources in a different way. Importantly, you try to block the unique ability that cancer has to recruit other cells to help it. We know that cancer cells can cheat, they can disguise themselves and get other cells to freely trade with them and get cheated in the process. Quick question here. Yeah. When a cancer grows, does it grow primarily by, you know, cloning itself or, you know, its own cell division, or does it also co-opt healthy cells and turn them into cancer cells somehow? Uh, I believe it's the former, but I'll tell you what, I don't really know absolutely. I'm almost certain it's just clonal proliferation, which is something that cells, normal cells can't do. And again, I believe that that's an instance of reverse evolution, being able to do that. So that's one of... The, the ecological privileges of cancer. Um, it's a terrific question. I hope you'll ask this of some of your other uh, interviewers, uh, interviewees. Oh, I have. Well, I have. Well, what did they say? Some say yes, some say no, but uh, no one knows the mechanism by which, uh, you know, the co-option would happen. I would guess extracellular vesicles mm-hmm. that carry, um, you know, epigenetic altering, you know, compounds, but I don't know. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. In the end, I'll offer a theoretical answer, which... And thank you, that's a great question. It interests me a lot. If we take the premise that cancer is a separate self, and if we assume that selfhood is a whole cell phenomenon, but is somewhat invested in its genomic complement, in other words, cancer is associated with aneuploidy, it is associated with, with chromosomal missegregation and instability. We, those are true things. For normal cells to be induced to become cancer cells, it would, at least in my mind, imply that they have to join the club, as it were. So how could that act? Well, let's say that cancer is related to a 
transmissible phage? Could be. Well, we know that normal cells use all sorts of transport mechanisms for uh, mRNAs, for viruses, for subviral components, circular uh, RNAs, all sorts of things. There's uh, DNAs. And we know that those things happen. So it isn't out of the question that a cancer cell could use creative transport mechanisms, exosomes, and transport a phage that is reproduced inside the cancer cell and induces normal cells into a cancerous state. I, at least theoretically to me, that sounds as though it's something that could happen quite readily. Well, if you have a virus-caused cancer, the initial mechanism is co-option by the virus of the cells, so why wouldn't it continue? But the problem is we don't really, as far as I know, I don't believe it is known, but but I perhaps others know better. I don't believe that the mechanism of a a virus-induced cancer, in other words, we know the solid association. We know that it's so. But if you were to ask a virologist, explain to me the exact mechanism by which a virus turns a normal cell into a cancer cell. I don't think we have that answer. You may know, you may know from your other interviewers, but I don't know that answer. No, I don't think, I'm, I'm looking for more, uh, you know, specialists. I would love to, I would love, I'll tell you what, if, if we had that answer, we'd be well along the pathway that I'm talking about. Um, well, here, I'll, I'll ask you a much easier question. And this is a joke, by the way. It's not, it's, you know, I'm being facetious. If I imagine colon cancer, and I'm saying this because that's the area in which the microbiome seems to be the most concentrated. And the people that don't believe that there's microbiomes in other parts of the body will be okay with it. So colon cancer, right? So they're heterogeneous. Each cell is different in various ways. And each cell, as we know, would attract a hyper-localized little microbiome to hang out near it. What would the microbiome of a tumor in the colon look like being con- con- you know, constituted of all these heterogeneous cells and all these, you know, differing microbiomes in such close proximity, what would the, you know, the metabolome look like? What would be the resource trading look like? What, what do you think you would see from that kind of a cancer in that arena that's different from other cancers? Well, thank you. You're making my point for me. No one knows those answers. And that's exactly my point. To, to actually successfully deal with cancer at the next level. I mean, we've done some remarkable, well, scientists have done remarkable things in cancer treatment. We've had, we've made terrific progress, but every single one of the things that you, uh, those questions you asked me are unanswered questions. I mean, we know associations, for example, we know that there are certain, in fact, let's just, let me rephrase that. We are beginning to know that certain bacterial, well, we use the word species, but it's probably inappropriate, strains in colonic microbiomes are associated with a higher incidence of cancer. We know that patients with IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, and ulcerative colitis, for example, have a much higher incidence of cancer because they have a breakdown of the normal gut barrier integrity. And that naturally means, I mean, it absolutely must mean that you have a a cross transference of microbial life from the colon into the gut lining cellular barrier that is abnormal, which is somehow or other part of tumorogenesis. And this is why patients with ulcerative colitis get colectomies a lot of the time, because there's, we don't know how to stop that. And, and so what do they do? An amputation, basically, a colon amputation. So let me go further. Otherwise, we'll, we'll be at this way, way too long. How else can we, we were talking before, we talked about changing microenvironments. We talked about uh, changing the way we look at immunological attacks directly on cancer. Are there indirect ways that we can go about cancer because of the new way of looking at it? Well, one of them is uh, we could just strengthen. This is something that you talked about, Rich. We can strengthen the normal cells. We can improve their access to resources. We can improve the information that they get within the cellular, I'm saying, I don't know exactly how to do this, but this is a new way of looking about going about cancer treatment. We can, so it's not just helping them bring in more immune cells. There's an information counterpart that can be thought about. There's a, maybe the synome of the normal cells can be made more acute. Maybe we can find ways to improve how 
the cells that surround a cancer co-engineer. We can improve their co-partnering. So what I'm suggesting is we can go attacking cancer in a way that just goes beyond lining up cancer cells and trying to execute them. There's a subtlety and a nuance that's important. We can try to disrupt, disrupt a cancer cell by trying to block their phenotypes. To It's not just blocking clonal lineages, the proliferation of clonal lineages, uh, lineages, there's got to be a cancer cell syndrome, right? Maybe we can find a way yep. to block that. How do we do that? Well, we'd have to understand how organisms gain, that would be normal cells too. How do they gain information from the environment? What is their information field? How do they intelligently assess information? How do they measure? Maybe we can learn a way to block cellular measurement. Just impair it. In a separate self of a cancer self, maybe there's a discriminatory difference, discriminatory difference between the normal cell and the cancer cell. So what we're trying to, what I'm trying to offer is that we can block, not just try to kill cancer cells, but try to block the way that they collaborate, block the way that they trade for resources, interrupt the way that they gain partnerships. And more than anything, this means disrupting cell-cell signaling, cell-cell communication. So for example, uh, there's been recent research and that has, uh, it demonstrates that uh, there's uh, exosome mediated transport. So there's, not only is there tumor proliferation, but there's there are exchange of resources, microRNAs, signaling molecules. Uh, all of these assist tumor proliferation, proliferation. And this is how to break down a cancer community. It's not just killing cells, it's breaking down the cancer community to outcompete regular cells. Part of this could be disrupting these st stigmergic cues that I'm talking about. So there's been research that's kind of been initially directed towards that. Uh, there's been use of endogenous of interrupting endogenous bioelectric signals to try to control cancers. It's very preliminary, but there is some initial promise that these very minimally explored areas do have hope. It's more than molecule. Here's an interesting way to go about it. I think this will appeal to you. Life is very complicated. Cellular life is extremely complicated. And we could look into uh, exploring the parasite of a parasite model. So let me explain what I mean. There is an amoeba that gets an infection with a giant virus, a giant, a giant lentile virus. Turns out that the giant virus gets, is itself can be infected and targeted by another, by an infectious virophage, which is called Sputnik 2. Isn't that a great name, Sputnik 2? Yeah, that's funny. And then here's the thing that's really crazy. Sputnik 2, the virophage, is itself infected by little bits of parasitic DNA. These are called transpovirions. So it's like a Russian nesting doll. So we, we know that there are multiple levels of infection, sub-infection. These can be explored. Maybe cancer cells are unusually sensitive to one or more parasite of parasites, which leads to the concept of infectious transmission of cancers. So what causes cancer? Well, one way we know that cancer is caused is it's transmissible in certain instances and amongst trans Tasmanian devils. So they, they engage in combat all the time. They're biting each other on the faces all the time and they get facial cancers, transmissible facial cancers. Here's a strange thing. This is a, there's a mollusk species that isn't susceptible to cancer, but it seems to somehow or other be able to infect other mollusks species, I'm trouble saying these words, mollusk, mollusk species. And it's as if it's the transfer of the cells. It's as if the cell itself is an infectious agent. And just to make things even, even weirder, uh, there's a, one case of infectious transmission of cancer, not in pregnancy, which is pretty well known, but uh, a tapeworm which is uh, Hymenolepsis nana. I'm looking at that because that's too tough a name for me to remember. Hymenolepsis nana transmitted cancer to a human in a 2015 paper. So, and lastly, uh, and I, I touched about this before, the whole concept of the tumor microbiome is only beginning to be explored. So uh, we mentioned earlier, pancreas has its own tumor microbiome. There's no question that it, it's a part of the cancer process. We just don't know how, what, what part it plays. But my personal bias is that it pays an important part. 
So before we finish, I want to talk a, a couple of other quick things. So we've talked about specific, or at least fairly directed ways of approaching cancer. But are there other more theoretical ways of considering cancer treatment? Well, let me ask a question that doesn't get posed. Does cancer have a purpose? You'll admit it's a strange question. Well, let me offer this reasoning to you so that you won't think it's ridiculous. We've said that cancer's its own self, its own self-referential agent. And in infectious disease, which is maybe a very good dynamic for understanding cancer, we know that the scientists look at infectious disease as life cycles for the infecting agent and the varying hosts that any pathogenic microbe is seeking. And, and we know that certain microbes will go from host to host to host in order to complete its life cycle. And we know also that in holobionts like us, we are shedding microbes, we're shedding infectious agents, we're excreting them, we're breathing them, we're urinating them. And so we know that we're part of a vast life cycle process in which microbial life serves. Well, this may seem a little weird, but how do we know that cancer can't be served in its own way by this same process? So if cancer is an infectious agent, there's a viral inclusion that triggers a cancer. And we know the cancer is caused by viruses. We just don't know how. But let's say we accept that the virus has gained entry for a trigger, it is not crazy to wonder whether or not we're just a vector for further transmission of that virus. Cancer is an, is an incidental aspect of the viruses. I mean, it's not incidental to the virus, but we are just an effect of the virus's larger purpose of getting to the next microenvironment that pleases it more. The next host may be a better host. So we're shedding cells, we're shedding tumor cells if we have a cancer. And how do we know that we're not a way station of a life cycle process of cancer? So huh. this has a further this has a further implication. Can well, I mean, the normal the, cells that we that we shed, they don't go on to. I mean, we don't know, I guess, but they don't they don't go on to form new people. You know, unless it's to reproduction. But no, no, DNA is. DNA is inert outside of the body. We know that. That's there's no doubt about that. DNA. No, no. I mean, if we if we're shedding, you know, I'm shedding cells all the time in microbes, like you said. But where do they go? Do they go anywhere significant and cause? Yeah, yeah they they are. What do they cause? Oh well, we're shedding billions of cells every day, and there are organisms, there are worms, there are microbes that they're, they're munching on us all the time. This cellular debris, our microbial debris, our microbial cloud that is that is around us. Uh, that sits around us invisibly, but is manifest and remarkable in its abundance. It's it is it is a consistent stream of life. It's just invisible to us, but we are contributing permanent signatures of of what we've done. But just our living imprint is is being spread all the time. We just don't know it. We just haven't thought about life, cellular life, this way before. And the thing is. We're not so. We're not shedding robots. We're shedding intelligences. They're not intelligences like us, but they're they are problem-solving microbes. And some of our cells may live for a while and then get ingested, and they get digested. But we know, and this is a fact, that we incorporate certain bits of alien DNA through nutritional through nutrition. We pick up plant DNA and we actually incorporate it. I mean, it has been incorporated over time into our human DNA. This is little known, but it's a fact. These, these. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you that. Do we do we utilize the DNA and RNA from the foods we eat? Do they go into us and do they serve a purpose? To a tiny, to a very tiny degree, it doesn't get digested in the way we think. It gets, it gets incorporated in pathways that are a little bit disturbing when you really begin to understand them. We don't really understand them well. But here, here's the thing that matters from all the things that I'm saying about does cancer have purpose? We're allowed to ask that question because when you know that cancer is a co-engineer and it's a co-partner and it, it's, it's capable of niche construction and all sorts of special faculties, then that's cellular creativity. Cancer has its own form of creativity which is something that 
you know, ordinary researchers have not concentrated on. So if I say that cancer has a purpose, what I'm saying is that your first question is cancer a different cell? Yes. Can that cell have a different purpose than, than what you and I imagine as purposes in biology? Yes. Does cancer have a life cycle? Is it conceivable that, you know, we think of a cancer as killing a human being and then it's the end. It's the end for the cancer. It's the end for the human being. Maybe not. Right. Maybe cancer is not a terminus. Maybe it's a means to an end. What does this mean for cancer research? Well, cancer research is still imbued with Darwinism, the neo-Darwinism, randomness, purposelessness. What I'm saying is anathema to neo-Darwinists. I'm saying we need to look at cancer beyond neo-Darwinism and look at it on the basis of the intelligent measuring cell. So where does this reasoning, where does all this take us? Cancer is creative and cancer is non-random. What does this mean? It means it uses creativity and its non-random patterns to explore information space and to exploit that information compared to regular cells. It, it exploits them. And so how, what are these biological capacities that permit cancer to do that versus normal cellular ecologies? Well, it, they have proliferated signaling. They sell cell signal in a different way. We don't know how yet, but they do. They resist growth suppressors differently. Some, some research has instructed us about that. They elude apoptosis. There are, many of these colonial lineages are effectively immortal, which leads to the, my reason, does cancer have a purpose? They can induce angiogenesis. This is an important aspect. What do they do? Well, they're engineering. Angiogenesis is engineering. Yeah, this, this is the, one of the last things I wanted to ask you is, why is no one trying to learn from cancer, learn how, you know, why not create uh, cancer organoids and put them through the paces and see if they can make, I don't know, I don't know if they can evade drugs and do all kinds of really cool things with their ability. I don't know what's, what's being done in that regard. Again, I'm not a cancer researcher, but I will say that the, the frame of reference is cancer is engineering is new. Invasion, metast tumor invasion and metastasis are just different aspects of cancer's ability to engineer. And when we know that, when we appreciate that, when we're willing to accept these new and somewhat uncomfortable thoughts, then we have new targets for therapy. therapy. Because what is different about engineering for cancer? For it? Well, they're co-opting resources in a better way than normal cells. They're reprogramming energy metabolism, normal energy metabolism of a the cell, they're creatively reprogramming energy metabolism to support that proliferation. They're evading immune destruction, which I think is a, a backwardization of their evolutionary toolkit. And then they're, what are they doing? They're co-partnering in a different way. There is no question, getting back to one of your earlier questions you put to me, there's no question that cancer effectively recruits normative cells. So let me ask Another question, what gets overlooked frequently in discussing cancer? Uh, the, I'll tell you the most, the most fundamental thing of all gets overlooked in discussing cancer. All tissue ecologies, all cellular tissue ecologies have to follow fundamental rules. But cancer researchers are, have not been interested in those rules per se. They're molecular scientists, many of them. They're immunogenic. They're searching for immunogenic patterns. These are all immensely important things. But what I'm talking about is a new frame of reference, which will lead to new innovative ways of thinking about things. Let me put it this way. Two questions should be asked in thinking about cancer that never get asked. The first one is, who is serving and who is being served? And the other one is, in cancers versus normal tissue ecologies next to a cancer, who is the observer and who is the participant? This is important because it emphasizes that they're self-referential. Both of them are. That means that they're both problem-solving agents on a front line. So we can change our terms of engagement of how that front line gets crossed, crossed by just framing the questions differently. So I believe that it's useful that to understand that biology is driven by intelligent measuring cells that are protecting their self-integrity, their co-engineering, their co-partnering, and importantly, Rich, they're doing it with, with an associated microbiome. All of these things are different. These provide different targets for cancer therapy. Yeah, I, I just, I agree. I just don't, uh, I think the problem is if people continue to see, if science continues to see cancer as just automatons and machines, then they're going to not, uh, 
they're not going to consider many factors about it that they should be very helpful. In, in yeah, I agree. I agree with you completely. If they, if they did just that, then they would stop focusing just on interrupting the cell cycle. I can't tell you how many lectures I went to about cell cycles and how you're going to do the S phase and this phase. These are all important things. I'm not denigrating them. But it's not all about destroying cancer cells. After all, every single one of us has cancer cells in us right now. So I'm a, I'm a man of a certain age. I have a prostate of a certain age. There's a 100% chance that I have cancer cells in my prostate. We know that if we do enough sections on a, of a, a prostate specimen, if you just, the, the incidence of cancer relates to the time available to the pathologist to look at the specimen. You know, obviously certain cancers jump out. But if, if you look hard enough, every male of a certain age has certain cells that have flipped to the abnormal configurations. But for almost all of us, it doesn't make a bit of difference. So it isn't a matter of killing all the cancer cells. You can't kill every cancer cell. You can simply, if we, if we learned more about co-engineering, co-partnership, niche construction, then we would know how to interrupt that shift that you had mentioned. How does it shift from one stage the benign stage, as it were, to the aggressive one. We don't know those answers, but I'll tell you where it does lie. I will offer this. But what are the best targets to find those answers? Cell-cell signaling, trading of resources, patterns of trading of resources. The microbiome, the co-partnering microbiome of cancer is a profound way of looking at cancer. And then you look at the concept of self. How does the differing self elude immunological surveillance and cheat in, in, a, in, in the exact context of co-engineering. And I think if we did those things, we would really be a long way, manipulating local bio, microbiomes, enhancing cell-cell signaling, and helping regular cells out-engineer cancer. And, and so the, the thing I'd like to emphasize finally is what I'm emphasizing are a couple of major concepts. First, it's not about molecular targets. It's about collective actions. Cancer's a verb. It's, it's co-partnering, co-engineering, competitive niche construction. It's the rules of community ecologies. It's how does the cell reverse engineer itself to do special things compared to regular cells? Cancer's creative. How, does it, how is it created? How does it manifest its creativity? Well, it co-partners with its localized microbiome to induce a dysbiosis that helps it. What is it doing with a, a microbial dysbiosis? It's recruiting to outcompete. I'd like to plant the seed of thought that cancer is not necessarily a terminus. It may have a, the, it, it's a hard thing to, for most people to wrap their minds around, but cancer could have a purpose. Why would I say that? Because right. cancer is not random. It doesn't succeed through ran, non, just random actions. Most cancer specialists will assume that clonal lineages have developed in a totally random way. I doubt that. So, and finally, cancer proliferation should be placed into a new and correct cellular dynamic. Two primary questions define this new way of looking at cancer. Who is serving and who is being served at the ecological level, cellular ecological level? Who is the observer and who is the participant? The answer to that second question is that both are at the same time, but in different ways. And if you explore that separation of how they are separate, right according, according to that question, the observer versus the participant, you'll have a lot of ways to combat cancer. Okay, no, very good. I don't wanna talk you to death, but we've had a good session. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? They could go to my website, www.themicrocosmwithin.com. They I have a science um, Twitter feed at Bill Miller MD, and um, there's a new website I've just put out called OurBioverse.com. There will be a book coming out in September of 2022 called Bioverse, and it's going to cover some of these things in, about how cells differ from what we've always imagined that they are, what their capabilities are like, how how do cells do what they do, and uh, it's a a bit in the future, but something for people to know about. Okay. Well, very good, Bill. Like I said, it's always great. Thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. I really appreciate being asked. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.